All right, we're going to read a whole book of the Bible tonight. Are y'all ready? If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Obadiah. I can't imagine that you've heard a sermon from the book of Obadiah lately, but you'll hear something of one in the time that we have together tonight. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament, just 21 verses. And uh, not only is Obadiah unusual for its brevity, it's also unique for the fact that it is not a book addressed to either Israel in the north or Judah in the south. Obadiah is a prophet raised up by God to preach not to the people of Israel, but to the people of Edom. If you'll remember your Old Testament history back in the book of Genesis, you, would, uh, you might remember that there was a wrestling that took place in a womb one time between twin boys named Jacob and Esau. And that wrestling continued throughout their childhood and young adulthood and to some extent throughout the course of their life until finally Esau was put off and Jacob received the birthright and the blessing. And Esau goes away uh, to establish an ancestry all his own. They became known as the Edomites or the people of Edom. And Jacob is one of the patriarchal fathers of the people of Israel. At this point in time in Israel's history, you have Israel there situated in the promised land, and you have Edom as their nearby neighbor, their brother, according to their descent from Esau. But Edom is no friend to Israel. Even though they are relatives, Edom is no friend. Back in Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 21, there is an experience on the part of the people of Israel as they're wandering the wilderness for those 40 years. They come to the territory of Edom, and, and they really need the ability to pass through Edom. They're sort of between a rock and a hard place, and things would be made much easier for them if they could only pass through and they send again and again requesting permission to pass through the territory of Edom. And the Edomites will not grant them permission. In fact, they gathered an army to hold them off from even passing through their territory. There's no request that they would uh, gain sustenance or water from the Edomite territory. They simply wanted to pass through. And they were not permitted to do so. From that moment on, enmity exists between the Israelites and the people of Edom. Where we find ourselves, I think, and there are different schools of thought, but I'm pretty confident in my school of thought, as you might imagine, where we find ourselves historically here is just after the people of Judah have been carried away into Babylonian captivity. So you have the northern tribe that's carried away in 722 for you date takers, and then the southern tribes carried away, Judah and Benjamin, carried away in 586 or 587 by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar carries them away, and that's where Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace. That, that's the period of exile where the people are carried away. Now, one of the things that Obadiah condemns the Edomites for is that as the people of Israel were being carried out by the Babylonians, Rather than running to their assistance, they mocked and sneered at them, and, and they, they, really, they really took a lot of delight in the fact that their brothers, Israel, were now being carried away into captivity. So Obadiah raises a, an interesting question for us. How do, how do we act toward or, or react to people around us coming under judgment, right? Right? 
We, we all sort of, if we're not careful, are inclined towards this college football approach. Like the only thing that excites me more than my favorite college football team winning is my favorite college football team's rival losing. And I really take more delight in them losing than I do my team winning because that's, that's how dark we are in, in our human hearts. Now, that's okay, I think, within the context of college football. I think it's okay within the context of college football. I'm not sure. I think it is. But I know it to be a sin against God with regards to loving our neighbor and interacting with the people around us. At some point in time, we as the people of God are individually and collectively all going to come under the hand of God's chastising discipline. At some point, the judgment of God is going to come against us, whether it be to greater or lesser degrees. People around you are going to come under the judgment of God. What is your response to be when the judgment of God comes against them? Do you delight in the fact that they're now reaping the consequences of their dreadful decisions? Or are you moved with mercy and compassion for them in spite of the things that they've done? It's the latter that God calls us to, and Obadiah makes that painfully clear in our passage. Given that we're working with only 21 verses, let's read the whole book together. Obadiah, verse number 1. The vision of Obadiah... This is what the Lord God has said about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let us go to war against her. Look, I'll make you insignificant among the nations. You will be deeply despised. Your presumptuous heart has deceived you. You who live in clefts of the rock, in your home on the heights, who say to yourselves, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there I'll bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. If thieves came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged would you be? Wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, wouldn't they leave some grapes? How Esau will be pillaged, his hidden treasures searched out. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration. Will I not eliminate the wise ones of Edom and those who understand from the hill country of Esau? Teman, your warriors, will be terrified so that everyone from the hill country of Esau will be destroyed by slaughter. You'll be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of violence done to your brother Jacob. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Don't gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Don't rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Don't boastfully mock in the day of distress. Don't enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster and do not appropriate their possessions in the day of their disaster. Don't stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives and don't hand over their survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you've done, so it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. 
They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. But there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossess them. Then the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire, and the house of Joseph a burning flame. But the house of Esau will be stubble. Jacob will set them on fire and consume Edom. Therefore, no survivor will remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will dispossess the hill country of Esau. Those from the Judean foothills will dispossess the Philistines, uh, the land of the Philistines. They will possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria, while Benjamin will possess Gilead. The exiles of the Israelites who were in Halah and who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, as well as the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, but the kingdom will be the Lord's. If we take a sort of out-of-order approach to what is said here, judgment are made clear in verses 10 through 16. What's described there is a scenario in which not only are they delighting in the destruction of the people of Judah, but to some extent they are facilitating their destruction. The idea of standing at the crossroads and cutting off their fugitives is the idea of getting in the way of their escape. The Babylonian army has rushed in and is capturing the people of Judah and those who manage to flee the city are making their way out by commonly traveled paths, commonly traveled roads, and the Edomites make it difficult for them to move about. They're essentially refugees. They're, they're seeking asylum from a war-torn country. And rather than being assistance to them, rather than helping them along in their escape, the Edomites actually oppose them. They, they provide uh, obstacles for them to have to overcome in their escape. There is a picture here, the imagery here is of them descending into the city of Jerusalem, descending into the nation of Judah, and picking over what is left of their stuff. Coming into a camp where people once, once lived, into a village where people once lived, and they've now been carried away captive, or they've been run out by the Babylonian army. They've fled to the wilderness in most cases, not most of Israel was carried away. Many were just rushed from their homes. They ran out into the wilderness to escape the heavy hand of Nebuchadnezzar's army, leaving all of their possessions behind. The Edomites swoop in to, to, to sort of gather the scraps that remain from among those towns and villages, and they're pictured here as casting lots or rolling dice in order to determine who gets what from among the stuff. The, the, really the principle, the bottom line, the practical application of what we observe in Edom and what God says to Edom regarding uh, a- acting in response to judgment that comes around us is that we don't delight in the destruction of our neighbors even when the destruction of our neighbors is a deserved thing. Now there is rejoicing in the service of justice, right? When justice is served, the people of God can rejoice in the service of justice. But rejoicing in justice doesn't have to negate a sense of compassion and mercy and and sadness for those who have come under the the heavy hand of God's judgment. It's important that we master this. And and I don't see a lot of this. Um, You know, know, when I I was a kid, my daddy used to talk to me about, about learning how to lose well in sports or 
in school, if you didn't do as well as you wanted to do, and we were fairly competitive, but you learn how to lose with a certain degree of, of dignity, and you hold, but now we don't even know how to win well, right? We don't know how to lose well, and we don't know how to win well. We, we, can't, we can't even ma manage victory. And, and that college football mentality that I mentioned a moment ago is far too prevalent, and social media has multiplied this exponentially. There's far too much rejoicing on the part of Christian folk in the demise or the misfortune of those who have positioned themselves either as enemies of the faith or as thorns in our side or even, as is often the case now, in opposition to the political party of our choice. Even when judgment comes, even when deserved judgment comes, there ought to be somewhere down in the deep, dark recesses of our cold human hearts a measure of compassion and mercy and understanding and, and sadness that the swift hand of God's heavy judgment indeed has fallen. One day, one day, whether it be to a greater or lesser degree, that judgment is going to come to us, either in its fullness at our rejection of Christ or in part as God chastens us, correcting us in certain areas of our life. We, we ought to, of all people who have embraced an understanding of who God is and his greatness, look with mercy and compassion upon those who have no eyes to see and no ears to hear and no heart to discern. Again, the practical message here is that we don't take delight in the destruction of those who come under the judgment of God. And we, there, there really are no exceptions to that. Now, in the first part of Obadiah's message, you find the word of judgment, a description of Edom's destruction here. And there's a lesson here as well. Look back to verse number one. This is what the Lord has said about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let us go to war against her. Look, I'll make you insignificant among the nations. You will be deeply despised. Now, the reason that would have rang loudly in the ears of an Edomite is because this is a season in Edom's history when they were very well off. The description that's provided here in our passage of Edom is a well-fortified and well-financed nation sitting in a really good position with strong military and political alliances around the area. Edom is smaller than Israel, but there is no Babylonian army that's invading the nation of Edom. In verse 3, the Bible says, Your presumptuous heart has deceived you, you who live in clefts of the rock, in your home on the heights, who say to yourselves, Who can bring me down to the ground? They, they live in a place that's not only ideal for its view, like the house on the hill has always been the house to have, right? But in an ancient Near Eastern context, the house on the hill provides more than just the picturesque view. It also provides you with a great deal of safety and security. You can see your enemy coming from a great distance away, and you have a distinct advantage against them in combat. God is saying, I'm going to bring you down from your lofty heights, from your clefts of the rock, from your house on the hill where you've been so presumptuous, you're eventually going to face the strong hand of God's judgment. In verse 4, the Bible says, Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. 
So the book begins with this, with this description of how God intends to destroy and humiliate the nation of Edom. In the middle of the book of Obadiah, there, there is this description of, of uh, Edom's um, mistreatment of the people of Israel as they're carried away captive. And then in the close of the book, there's this brief discussion on the deliverance of God's people. Now, what's interesting about that is that, again, this is not a book written to the people of Israel. This is not a book written to the northern tribes of Israel. This is not a book written to Judah and Benjamin in the south. This is a book written to a pagan foreign people. These people are, put plainly, not God's people. And yet God is declaring to them the restoration that he has guaranteed his people. Look to verse 17. He says here, there'll be a deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossessed them. In other words, what has gone around will come around again. The house of Jacob will be a blazing fire, and the house of Joseph a burning flame, and the house of Esau will be stubble. Both the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph are references to the same house, the people of Israel. It's just kind of a, a more artistic and less redundant way of saying Israel is coming back. And when Israel comes back, Edom, once a great nation, will be stubble. In other words, they will be cut down and they will be burned over. Jacob will set them on fire and consume them. Therefore, no survivor will remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And then in verses 19 and 20, there are all these names that may be confusing to you, all these geographic locations that probably don't mean a whole lot to you, you know. But what's being described here is the allotment of the 12 tribes' land. You, ha you have various locations from within the tribal allotments. Remember when Joseph brings the people of Israel into the promised land and they conquer the land first in the central and then in the north and then in the south all the way from Dan to Beersheba, the people of Israel possess the promised land and each tribe is given their own unique allotment of land. What, what seems to be happening in these verses, if I'm following Obadiah, is that he's making reference to key locations within each of those tribal allotments, demonstrating that Israel is going to take back everything that God ever intended them to have, even from the very beginning of their history. And then at the close of our passage in verse 21, I think there's a translation issue here. My translation says, Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, but the kingdom will be the Lord's. There is a marginal translation that I think is probably better, a better representation of what Obadiah records that says, those who have been delivered will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, but the kingdom will be the Lord's. In other words, God is establishing a kingdom all his own. His people will ascend the holy hill, and the kingdom will belong to him. In that day... Any enemy of God, any enemy of God's people will be cut down. They will be stubble, and Jacob will burn them over. Now, I want you to notice what's happened here in our, in our study. We started in the first section, three sections in the book, right? First section talks about Edom's destruction. Middle section talks about Edom's wickedness toward Israel. And then the last section talks about Israel's future deliverance. In the first section, you have a description of a now great nation, they're having their day, right? 
things are about as good as they can be for Edom. And things could not possibly be any worse for the people of Israel. But in the close of Obadiah's prophecy, what he promises is that a day is coming when things could not be better for the people of God and things could not possibly be worse for the enemies of God. This is precisely what James describes in the book of James chapter 3 when he says God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. The language there is, is God fighting against or God making war against the proud but dealing humbly and mercifully and graciously with the lowly. In other word, words, God, the one that's high and lifted up, God brings low. But the meek and the lowly, at this stage in their history under God's judgment, the people of Israel are lifted up. It is true that God's people will struggle and suffer with a, a great deal of difficulty in this life. God's people have suffered in great ways throughout history. But Obadiah reminds us, I think in a, a powerful way, that there's coming a day when in spite of the hardships that we may face in the here and now, the sufferings that we endure, even the ways that we may be mocked or scorned, when God reverses our fortunes, when God makes everything be all right, when God makes war against the proud but gives grace to the humble. That, see, that not, when you know that, when you know that, and your neighbor who's made a lifetime of bad decisions comes under the judgment of God, you, you'll be likely to be moved with mercy and compassion toward them. Because you understand that you deserve the judgment of God. But by grace and through faith in his only son, Jesus, God has given us what we did not deserve in order that we don't have to receive what we all deserve. Aren't you glad for that? So the next time your favorite football team, or maybe your least favorite football team, loses and you rejoice in your heart over that, be reminded that although that may be appropriate for college football, it's not the best way to see the world around us. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for these moments that you've given us to spend together around your word. I, I do pray, God, that you would help us to look upon our enemies with mercy. Help us to do what Jesus has told us to do and to love even our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Guard our mouths against saying things that would be hurtful or unhelpful help us to be people who speak with grace and kindness toward those around us guard us from saying or doing things lord that would paint um, the kingdom in a negative light help, help us god to be true representatives of your son jesus help us to be ambassadors for christ seeking the reconciliation of those around us with god through Jesus. Help us to know how to best plead with souls that they would come to you, Lord, that they would trust and believe in you. And help us to know, Lord, how to deal mercifully and kindly with those who have suffered judgment around us. God, virtually all of the bad things that happen in our life are the product of our bad decisions. 
And we rejoice tonight, God, that you've not given us all that we deserve. Thank you for that, God, that there's grace for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to treat others with a measure of generosity that runs parallel to the generosity that you've shown us. Help us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.